by way of a bit of a recap, we've hopped into the book of Ephesians. We're going to spend considerable time here. Um, and we're titling this first chapter, this first section of the series, Finding Yourself, wherein we might be able to locate our worth and our value in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and in particular, how that is expressed in the context of the local church. This entire book is written in many ways to several different smaller churches in that Turkey area, in that um, ancient uh, Ephesian area. And these churches were meant to understand their identity in Christ Jesus. So what does that look like for us here this morning? We're going to be in verses 7 through 12. When you get to chapter 1, verse 7, give me a oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. All right, just one second. Although I think somebody just really likes saying that. That's why they said it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, In him, that's Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, star it, highlight it, underline it. This is Paul's thesis for the entire book of Ephesians. As a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. I'm going to read those verses again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite. Somebody say unite. unite. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father, who is man that you would be mindful of him? And what is man that you would care for him? Lacking in any inherent beauty, any self-fount of attractiveness. We do not possess a beauty effervescent all of our own. No, it is only what you have given. Man is nothing. We are nothing. And yet... You, by way of your son, donned the garments of a slave to come down and to take our place, making Christ Jesus for a little while lower than the angels, that we ourselves might be united to you by faith. Father, your word lies open before us, <clears throat> and we are in great need to hear your voice. 
And the only way that we can hear your voice and know for certain that it is you is through this theonoustos, this God-breathed word that is before us. And so we need your breath to reveal the depths of it. Spirit of God, would you come and would you make plain the words on these pages? And this morning, would you be our guide and our interpreter, we ask, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. There are two nights that are unlike any other two nights. The first night is the night before Christmas. There's something about that night, isn't there? As a child, there's the magic of the unknown. As the kernels of greed spark inside of our hearts, where we just cannot wait to figure out what Santa brought us this year for Christmas. There's an expectation on Christmas Eve that pales into comparison to maybe no other day except the night before you go to Disney World. I can remember as a child lying awake in our pop-up camper in Fort Wilderness, smelling all of the sounds, hearing all of the geese and my brother with his feet in my back, staring at the ceiling of this camper, absolutely geeked about going to Disney the next day. There's an expectation. There's something in the air that's simmering. There's something special that's happening. Perhaps you've been around an organization or perhaps you've been at a concert and you've sensed before the note strikes first, there is an expectation. It's the feeling that something incredible is about to happen. There is right now in our very galaxy our very galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there is right now a similar expectation. If you were to look at the Milky Way galaxy, you would see that a very galaxy that we live in is comprised of thousands of stars. You can throw that picture up there. And the Milky Way itself is beautiful. And if you were to take a telescope and a camera and look in a long exposure and to capture in part how beautiful this is, Giant gases of ball, uh, balls of gases rather, spinning around places that are so far we only can reach there in our minds and yet I can't help but to think that maybe Jeff Bezos might actually get there someday. <laughs> but the beauty of the Milky Way, the beauty of the stars, the beauty of the gases, even right now within the fabric and the framework of the vacuum of space, there lies an expectation. And that expectation is that the chaos that they've once been thrown into is soon to end. This morning, as we turn our attention into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, we find perhaps the most important verses in the entire book. Sure, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and sure, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 are really important in terms of setting the framework for the context and the composition of the local church. 
But there's something about the expectation of the work of Christ that it invites us to look at this morning. And it all centers on this man, this person, Christ Jesus. And as I think, before we hop into verse 7, I can't help but to think these questions as I'm preparing this week. What if God's plan for his church is but a small part of all that God is doing? Furthermore, what if God's plan for you is a tiny slice of all that God is doing? And what if, what if, what if God's elaborate, intricate plan for the universe, this ornate plan of redemption and redemptive program, what if it's so grand that our small insignificant lives are a part of it and not the sum total of God's work? What if perhaps we placed ourselves at the center of God's redemptive program and he's inviting us to have a wider view? I want to contend this morning that many of us, myself included, have been looking at God, looking at the spiritual life through a keyhole. And the book of Ephesians wants to bring us to the mountaintop to give us a view of the vista. Paul begins in verse 7, where we find our first point this morning, with the truth that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. This first clause in verse 7, in him we have the redemption through his blood. That's a very uh, graphic way to explain what it means to be forgiven, redemption. Redemption here refers to a vicarious gift that covers, its value covers a fault. It covers a fault to the point where a debt is canceled and... In canceling the debt, a ransom is also paid. A redemption is buying back of something. It is paying a debt vicariously, meaning that our redemption is paid on our behalf by somebody who's got way deeper pockets. Furthermore, this redemption cancels the debt that we owe and it pays a ransom. Now, in order to really understand all of this, Paul preaches and writes this letter, not in a vacuum, but with all of the Old Testament in his view, meaning that Paul has in his mind one crystallizing central moment in the history of Israel that would help us understand redemption, and that is Passover. Do you remember the night after all those plagues swept through Egypt, but left Goshen untouched. God instructs Moses to tell the people, I need you to slaughter a goat or a lamb and to splay its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your house. For when I see the blood, what did God promise? He would pass over them. It was the blood on the doorposts that signified that those inside of the house would be safe from judgment. God instructed that the blood might be a sign of salvation because there was a debt to be paid in Egypt that day. There was a check that Pharaoh wrote with his mouth that his rear end could not cash. 
as he declares himself a sovereign in his own right, at the exclusion of the sovereign Yahweh, creator of the universe, God says, you think you bad? The entire first 14 chapters of Exodus is not Pharaoh versus Moses. It is God versus every false God that thinks themselves God. So he uses the Passover as a object lesson to make sure everyone knows that only I am God. And the blood that was on the doorposts from those goats and those lambs, they spoke a better word than the guilt of those inside of the house. Because if it wasn't the goat or the lamb, it was going to be someone's little brother. It was going to be someone's father. It was going to be the firstborn that God would take as a blood debt to satisfy the debt. And yet God says the blood of goats and lambs here will suffice. It is here that we see that God pays a ransom. God pays a fee of redemption. But the question is, both in Exodus and here in Ephesians, to whom does God pay a ransom? To whom does God pay a ransom? To whom does God redeem us from? There is the temptation to understand that we might be ransomed from Satan, though he himself is referenced as the lowercase g, God of this age. But it would make no sense, either logically or theologically, that God would pay a ransom to Satan, given that Satan is a subservient and already defeated foe. God doesn't pay a ransom to Satan, nor does he pay a ransom to some faceless evil. God, in fact, pays a ransom to himself. That is costly to himself on our behalf so that we might live in community with God again. This is why the gospel makes no sense. God of his own prerogative pays himself off. Theologically, the word is propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. God takes the bill that was due with our name on it to buy us back so that he might keep a promise he made to Abraham long ago that in you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. And it won't be the blood of bulls and goats that'll accomplish that. It'll be mine. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. In order to really dig into this, we got to dig into forgiveness and trespass. So in him, we have redemption. In him, we've been bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, now, now this word is, this word trespasses comes from the Greek Root, amartia, or sin, it's where theologically we get the category harmartiology, which is sort of this theology of sin. But in order to really understand this, we've got to go back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament uses three primary ways to speak of sin. In the Old Testament, we get the word sin, we get the word transgression, and we get the word iniquity. Sin is a word generally for, uh, for missing the mark or sinning against God. A transgression is, the, is the, the willful sin. It's that sin that you know is wrong, but you do it anyway. It's the sin that we carry into it. Um, yeah, I, I know God will forgive me, so I'm just going to ask for forgiveness on the back end. You ain't got to shake your head. You ain't got to nod your head. You ain't got to say nothing. I know you done did that. 
But the third category is iniquity. And iniquity is that sin that's got its claws so deep in us that we no longer feel conviction over it. It's the sin that we've given ourselves completely and wholly over to. It's the sin that no matter what, the Spirit of God, for some reason, he's tried to knock, he's tried to knock, he's tried to knock, he's tried to shout, and we've closed the door. And I love that in the Old Testament, God's promise of forgiveness is not just with general sin. It's not just with more specific willful sin. But God in the offering that he offers is for sin that we are unrepentant of. Paul takes a similar concept here and he begins to speak of the trespass or the forgiveness of our trespasses. The trespass here connoting guilt. We are forgiven of our guilt. We're forgiven of our guilt and our debt because we owe God our lives because of our treachery. Not only were we born into sin, but friends, we constantly find ways to disobey and to sin in the face of God. And if you don't believe me, some of you are sinning right now. There is within inside of us a propensity to want to be God. Our flesh wants to rail against God. Everything in us wants to buck against the authority that God has outright claimed. There is a debt that we owe and there is guilt that we carry. But if we owe God the debt of a life, praise be to God that by faith it is not our life that he takes, but he took the life of Jesus. It is in the blood sacrifice of Jesus, like a substitutionary sacrifice in the Old Testament. It is the blood that covers us. It is the blood that atones for our sin. It is the blood that was mingled with sorrow on Calvary that speaks a better word. So let me just, let me, let me just hop up all in your lap and breathe, and breathe my hot breath in your face real quick. There will be times in your life with Jesus when you will be tempted to believe lies both about who you are and how God sees you. And I need you to remember that the blood of Jesus speaks a truer and better word than the lies that you're believing. There will be times when the enemy will want to destroy you. He'll want to discourage you and he'll want you to believe all sorts of things. I just need you to know that the blood of Jesus speaks a truer and better word. Here is why every help Every um, attempt at self-help will fail. Have you noticed that every month, every week, it seems, there is some new self-help book on the shelf? Do you know why there are so many self-help books? It's because they don't work. And yet people in the way that humans are insane continue to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results. And I'm here to tell you there's only been one final activity on behalf of all of creation that renders the result that was actually meant to render, which is in Christ, you are forgiven. Somebody, somebody needs to walk in freedom today. Because the blood of Christ has covered and your trespasses have been forgiven by faith, by the things that you are still ashamed of and carrying all of these years. You've been burdened by something that you've done. And I'm here to tell you that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than a word of condemnation, both from your flesh and the enemy. Friend, here is why the gospel is so much deeper than Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. 
It is because in the blood, if we miss the blood, and I I might go back to church here because I grew up in a church where we used to talk about the blood all the time. In the blood of Christ, we find in that cleansing flow all that we need in our relationship with God to see us as God sees us. Consider for a moment, how in the world could something dipped in blood be so clean, even white as snow. The author of Hebrews encourages us as he encourages those Hebrews who were in uh, Asia and are living a life where their faith is being tested and they're living a life where they feel like they're about to walk away and they feel like they're about to quit and persecution is hot and heavy and they don't know if they want to do it. And so if you're here and maybe you might be a skeptic or maybe you might be on the outside, if you're watching here this morning, maybe you've struggled to wonder if God himself loves you. How are you going to hold on in the midst of all of this? I just want you to hear these words from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verses 22 through 24. Here it is. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews wants you to see that what you have by the blood of Jesus is a new Jerusalem. It's a new city where you have a savior who mediates a new covenant where all the work of that covenant of that kingdom rests in the finished work of Jesus. And we simply have to be covered in the blood by faith. Paul says, in Christ alone, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins, third and final clause, according to the riches of his grace. Now, now before we get to the riches of his grace, which is our second point this morning, there are a couple of assurances that we have because of just two clauses, two clauses, about 10 words. There's some assurances. Here's the assurances. The assurance is, yes, The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. But the assurance is that God loves you not because of your goodness. And I don't know how many times that we have to say this. And if I have to wake up every day, if I could wake up and I do wake up every day to fight legalism in the lives of believers, friends, that is a fight I will take on every day because legalism traps you in a prison of self-reliance. Where in the narcissistic prison of self-reliance, you don't see the beauty and the glory of Christ and all that he's done for you. I'm assured that it is not my performance that makes God love me. Because if God were to love me more on a good day, then he could love me less on a bad day. But ain't nothing that I can do that God loves me. My performance does not gain me access to God. And it is not my blood. It is not my own self-sacrifice. No matter how penitent I might be, no matter how much self-flagellation I do, no matter how long and how much of a dirge I make my prayers after I sin, it does not make God love us anymore. Why, friends? Because it's all about the blood of Christ Jesus. I I could stay here for the next 30 minutes and not exhaust the topic. But as such, I got nine minutes left. I need to move on. (laughs) 
I think the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, but what supplements, and not even supplements, but what accents the sufficient nature of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, second point this morning, is that there is a kindness here that we don't deserve. There is a kindness here that we do not deserve. On December 20th, 1943, Charlie Brown, an American fighter pilot, was just leaving a successful bombing of a city over Germany. Throughout the episode, the bombing was successful, but his plane was damaged severely. And as he's flying, racing, trying to get back into um, allied territory, he sees and he spots a German fighter pilot tailing him. This fighter pilot is moving at a clip that's much faster than his damaged bird. He knows in just a matter of moments he's going to be shot down. And he looks over to his right, and to his great surprise, he sees that this fighter pilot is actually flying right next to him, which was odd to him. And then the fighter pilot signals, I'm not going to shoot you down, but I'm going to escort you to safety. This enemy fighter pilot flew all the way back across German lines into enemy territory so that Charlie Brown might be safe. This German fighter pilot, Franz Stigler, had on that day performed an unwarranted act of kindness. There was no reason why this man should be so gracious and so kind as to escort one of the bombers that had just dropped bombs on his own native land, and yet he even crossed over into enemy territory to ensure that his enemy was safe. It is that same sense of grace that God in Christ performs on our behalf. We are and were enemies of God. And God goes into enemy territory to rescue us. Why? According to the riches of his grace. Uh, Paul uses this phrase several times throughout his, uh, um, uh, his, his corpus in the New Testament. And, and this wealth of kindness, quite honestly, doesn't make sense. And if the power of if Christ is a power of redemption, then grace is the why. And it is this kindness of God that Paul says leads us to repentance. Now, I've got to be honest. When I was a kid, I was terrified of God because I heard a story about Ananias and Sapphira getting struck down dead because they lied. And I remember one time I stole an ashtray from a day's end in Charleston, South Carolina when I was in sixth grade. I don't know why I did it. I thought it was cool. I came back home and I was riddled with shame and guilt, begging God not to take my life. And for much of my life, I served the Lord as if I was perpetually wincing, waiting for God to punish me for my sin because I saw God as this not more than big voice in the sky who was bent on punishing me for all of my sin. And yet when I read through the New Testament, it is not the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. It is not the fear of God that leads us to repentance. It is not us being afraid of hell that leads us to repentance. It is God's kindness. It is his unmerited, unmitigated, rich grace and kindness. If we as a church were to grasp how radically transforming grace is, we might be a beacon to the rest of the world of what's possible when we live and behave as God in Christ does to us. Imagine that grace. 
But the reason that God can do it and we can is because God, again, has deep pockets. There are an abundance of riches. This is rich, rich, rich grace. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon says it this way, and I really like how he puts this. Follow me here. There's some antiquated language here, but it's good nonetheless. He says this. He says, repentance was never yet produced in any man's heart apart from the grace of God. As soon may you expect the leopard to regret the blood with which its fangs are moistened. As soon might you expect the lion of the wood to abjure his cruel tyranny over the feeble beasts of the plain as expect the sinner to make any confession or offer any repentance that shall be accepted of God unless grace shall first renew the heart. I love that. It is the picture of a magnanimous grace, friends. A kindness that you don't deserve and yet God lavishes it upon you richly. Just let that wash over you this morning. Uh, um, in, in the book of John, this ain't in my notes. In the book of John, chapter one, uh, John has a phrase just before he declares that Christ Jesus is, um, is the, 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 the word become flesh. Uh, John writes uh, around verse 10. He says, and from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. And I love that image, grace upon grace. And, and I'm going to use this picture a lot, Lord willing, in my time with you because it's so rich. Um, you guys ever been to the beach? Many of you have been to the beach. I don't like the beach. Um, I don't like sand. Um, I like sitting up away from the beach where I can see and enjoy the beach without actually getting sandy. Um, and I got stung by a jellyfish one time in Jacksonville, so I'm still kind of mad at the ocean. Um, also, um, also, like great white sharks don't come walking up in my, liver, in my kitchen making uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, so I'm not going to hop in their crib. I'm just saying. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lead them. I'm going to let them have their house, all right? But there is something incredibly constant. There's one particular characteristic of the beach that is constant and never ending. What is it? It's the waves. No matter what time of day you go out there, there's going to be waves lapping on the shore. No matter where you are on the beach, there's going to be waves lapping on the shore. In the book of John, when John says that from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. It is the image of wave after wave after wave after wave. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Kindness upon kindness upon kindness. Friend, God is not mad at you. There is grace that is available for you. You are not being punished. You might be being disciplined, but even in the discipline of God, there is grace upon grace upon grace. It is grace that leads us to repentance. And it is for grace that God has redeemed us for his own sake. And it is for grace that we get the answer to a mystery here, which is the redemption of of all things. Third and final point this morning. In verse 9, back end of 9 and into verse 10, we see a mystery of unity. A mystery of unity. All right, I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm about to step on a lot of y'all's toes, okay? Um, I'm just going, this is just a, a warning. Um, but this is, this is true. This is true. Thank you, brother. One great danger and one great blind spot of American Christianity is a myopic understanding of God's redemptive program. 
It is the self-centered view that me as an individual, I stand in the center of what God is doing in all of the universe. And the myopic aspect to it is that there is, from a very real and good impulse, has come the fruit of unhealthy habits. The impulse and the emphasis around the turn of the 20th century with the rise of fundamentalism and the rise of evangelicalism properly um, was the emphasis on Jesus Christ being a personal savior. It was the desire to take Jesus from being a transcendent figure who stands outside of the human experience to make him deeply imminent, rightly, because Christ does by his spirit walk with us. And Jesus is intimately connected in our lives and our walk with the Lord. And yet, there has been too heavy of an emphasis on the personal nature of it. And we have, to our own detriment, lost the corporate nature of what it means to be a part of God's church and God's redemptive program of all of the cosmos. It is Christ Jesus who stands at the center. We are but small orbital satellites around it. And moreover, how we understand ourselves in light of all that God is doing has to be placed in the tension that, yes, Christ is our personal Savior, and Jesus will redeem a bride, a collective church, for his own possession, who collectively sing his praises, yes, as individual parts of what? A whole. One thing I didn't do last week is I didn't preach the plurals last week. My buddy uh, told me, he said, Jason, I loved your sermon last week, but the one thing you didn't do is you didn't preach the plurals. I said, you're right. That's a good word. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to preach the plurals. I want you to look in your Bible with me, and I want to start in verse 3. Let's start in verse 3. Let's just point out all of the plurality in these first 10 verses. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of Our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Here's what Paul is getting at. The church is not an open-handed slap. It is a closed-handed fist. The church is not only a collection of individuals doing their own thing, doing their own personal walk with Jesus. No, friends, your relationship with Jesus may be personal, but it is not private. And it is not personal only. We are called into a we. Now, here's what makes it hard in a multi-ethnic church. It's because culture understands we in different ways. I experience a we very differently than many of you all experience a we. Some of y'all, like, I'm experiencing the we of my culture by wearing these shoes this morning. And some of y'all looking at these shoes like, is this man crazy? (laughs) Some of you experience the we with um, sort of old school southern rock and, like, cut off t-shirts. I love Leonard Skinner, but that's just not my jam. 
The difficulty in being a local expression of an outpost of heaven is the collective sense of we has to involve that we all belong to one another and we all have open-handed lives before the Lord saying, Lord, here's my life. Do with it what you will. Because ultimately, God is not a genie. Many of us ask, God, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. But the call is, yes, I will do X, Y, and Z through the hands and feet of my people. Why has God left us here with the spirit of God inside of us? It is so that we might be Jesus to people. Lynn Kohick says this in her, um, in her really brilliant uh, uh, um, uh, commentary on Ephesus. And it's a long quote. And I want you to stay with me because it's really, really good. She says this. She says, the resurrection of Jesus indicates that God did not reject his creation but seeks to redeem it through Christ. Our worship and our mission should be eschatologically focused, meaning that there's a focus on the redemption and the consummation of all things in the end times. And that means we do away with the dualism between spirit and body, which in church missions looks like saving souls without tending to bodily needs. Instead, a humble church should sing notes of grace to the present world God's redemptive work establishing the church as a beachhead in this present age means that believers should engage in bringing God's mercy, justice, and grace to our communities at all levels, schools, hospitals, and governments as a real, natural, and expected part of the church's conviction that Christ is now Lord of all, not just of believers' hearts. What does Paul say in verse 10? Look at verse 10. Paul says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself. In the previous verse, he says that this is the, uh, the uh, mystery of God's will that is now revealed. This thing has been hidden and then concealed. But Paul's like, let me let, me let you peek behind the curtain. Let me, see what, let me show you what Christ is doing. He's uniting all things in himself. This means that everyone down to the individual in this room, all the way to the Milky Way galaxy, and all of the universe beyond it that we don't even understand a fraction of, every star in the sky, every gaseous nebula, every moon, every satellite, every meteor, every asteroid that hopefully doesn't slam into the earth, all of these things, God is uniting in himself. The work of Jesus is cosmic. So some people say, well, Jason, what is the gospel then? And I would say that the gospel is this. The gospel is king, kingdom, and its cross. Yes, the cross of Christ saves us as individuals, but it only saves us as individuals because the king got on the cross. And why did the king get on the cross? The king got on the cross so that his kingdom might come. And his kingdom ain't just me, because if it's just me, friends, that's a poor kingdom. No, the kingdom of Christ is all things. Why? Because there is a returning to unity and there's a returning to Eden that God desires that he dwells with his people in a whole and healed creation. So the challenge for us is, how do we live the we? But the greater challenge is that unity requires sacrifice. Unity requires sacrifice. We can talk unity, let's be unified, let's be unified. But when we say that too often, it is unity at someone else's expense. 
True unity in the body of Christ comes to the table and says, I'm going to lay my preferences to the side and I'm actually giving up these things so that we might be together. As a multi-ethnic church and a socially and politically fractured world, it is our great opportunity to be a witness to the lavishing grace of God on his church in that way by asking What is it that we're willing to give up? Because there is no unifying of all things if Christ himself doesn't sacrifice a ton to bring us to himself. So I'm done. But I want us to do this. I want us to take a minute to reflect upon and respond to God's word. And then here in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table to receive communion from the Lord as a church family. Father in heaven, you have by your grace preserved a people for yourself. Not a gathering of individuals, but a people who experience the we of Christ and his kingdom, his person and his work. A group of people who have been bound by the tragedy and triumph of the cross who've been saved into and redeemed into community. Lord, this is a truth that we cannot fully understand. But would you help us grow up into that truth? And so now as we come to the table that you so graciously invite us into, Lord, would you preserve a people for yourself? Preserve a remnant of people who have not bowed the knee to Baal or to Nero but who only bow to Christ the King. So would you come now and be with us in this moment, we ask and pray. In the name of Christ Jesus and for his sake, amen.